It is Easter week, and I am so excited to be here with you celebrating the march toward the cross, the debt that was paid, and the glorious victory that was won. I hope you are excited as well. This, this week, we have a couple devotionals for you. They're at the Welcome Center. They're very, very short, just to kind of help guide you through uh, thinking deep, the deep thoughts of God as we walk through this week, and I pray that'll be an encouragement to you. There are also all sorts of other books where we're... Um, Throw, throwing, we're setting on the table out there. Um, I want to encourage you. There's a there's one uh, discipleship book f- uh, for men and one for women. There are a couple children's books that I personally love. Sometimes I think I get more out of those books than I do some of the others. But uh, all kinds of wonderful things there. There's even a book we're putting there on church elders. Uh, as we start to think about what that really means for us here at Bethany. Uh, That's a short one, uh, but a very good read. And if you are in leadership here, you should probably grab that one as well. Uh, I'm excited for today, Palm Sunday. We begin like this. On April 10th, 1912, some 2,200 passengers set sail thinking that they had broken free. The first sailing of the largest vessel ever built. The vast open sea off the bow and that cool, salty air coming, blowing through their hair and through their clothing. Those aboard had, must have had that, that feeling of freedom pulsating through their veins. Some were headed for adventure, some uh, for just recreation, others for opportunity. Still others, they were on a journey of, of escape, a flight from a bitter past or from oppression or from poverty or captivity. Hello, bright and better future. Hello, horizon. What do you have in store for us? As she pulled out of Ireland's coastal waters and plunged into open ocean, The 882-foot ship and her company had broken free. Or had they? Some five days later, the tinkling of crystal, the, the unbridled laughter, the soft, soothing, melodic rhythms of live music were replaced by shouts and screams and the guttural groans of a hull taking on water and the words women and children first. The voyage of freedom had become a cruise of terror. It's rather ironic, isn't it? This morning is is all about irony. One of the greatest ironies of all time involved another voyage, a voyage that the Bible describes as happening at the very beginning. In the pursuit of freedom, humanity departed from the safe, still, crystal clear waters of its creator and found itself enslaved and inflicted and on a voyage straight to the bottom. 
We now live in a world that's filled with fear. It's filled with disease and distrust and greed and guilt and despair. And like those who were desperate to find their place on a lifeboat, we're all looking for ways to break free. People look in all sorts of different ways, don't they? They, they look for freedom by achieving their goals. How do, how do we get there? How do I accomplish my dreams? Some are looking to just make it big, to get everything that they ever wanted. Some, they, they think that breaking free is, is standing out from the crowd and becoming that, that influencer, someone who is known by all. Maybe it's finding true love, that person, that special person that you're going to spend those precious moments of life with. For many of us, it's just breaking free. is getting out of this pandemic season that we're in and moving on to some type of normal. Or maybe it's, maybe for others, it's simply making the most of the time that you have left. But I want to propose this morning that true freedom Breaking free, pulling out of life's downward drift is not found in striving, in hoping, in trying. Neither is it reached by pushing or shoving or fighting or clawing, but instead the path to breaking free is found in one of the truly great ironies of life. The path to breaking free is found in surrender. Surrender to the one who gave up his freedom on our behalf. It's found in the one who endured agony so that we might find freedom in the irony. This is Palm Sunday. We already said that. It's a day where we celebrate Christ's triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And as he passed through those city gates, people were lining the streets and they were throwing palm branches down on the ground and they were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And we're not going to go into detail into that this morning in part because we're journeying through the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, and we are going to get there very, very soon. But this morning, what I would like us to do is depart from Mark's gospel and, and zero in on Matthew's gospel, his account of the good news, and see there four powerful ironies that involve the agony of the cross, to which we are inseparably linked and where we find our freedom. Let's, let's give just a little bit of background to bring us up to speed. To Matthew, we'll get to chapter 27 today. That's where we want to spend our time. Irony. That's a word that some people misunderstand. And maybe, maybe you, you haven't quite woken up yet, or uh, that coffee hasn't kind of kicked in yet, or maybe you're just a little bit rusty on your vocabulary. Irony is simply this. It's, it's something that expresses meaning using language that normally means the opposite, right? And so for a few examples, the words, nothing is written in stone, written in stone, that's rather ironic, isn't it? Okay, here's, here's, here's another one, example of irony. Thank you for driving carefully. Uh, yeah, that's rather ironic. 
there's four major ironies in Matthew chapter 27. And here's the background to it that brings us up to speed before we jump right into it. Jesus had been publicly doing ministry. He had been preaching, he had been teaching, he had been healing, he had been miraculously feeding enormous crowds for somewhere between two and three years now. Some had been captivated by his incredible power, by his wisdom, by his teaching. Wow, what, who is this? What's going on here? Others had, had made huge personal sacrifices to follow him, to be one of his own, to learn from him as one of his disciples, to be in that inner circle. Still others didn't take too kindly to him, the religious elites they were not very excited about Jesus. He was a threat to the good thing that they had going in life, and he was an affront to their teaching. And then there were the political powers. Well, they were kind of scratching their heads and wondering whether or not they should be concerned about this guy because people were attributing titles to him like king or messiah or lord. And these things were starting to sound the alert. Is this a guy who might start some type of rebellion here? We know what we do with those kind of people. We eliminate them. So... At this point in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 27, Jesus had been arrested. Arrested. He was bounced through the courts. He was found guilty of treason. He was bound for execution. And in verse 27 of chapter 27, we find the Roman soldiers, they're making preparations for Jesus' crucifixion. Now look with me at Matthew 27, verse 27. It says this. You can follow along on the screens or in your Bibles. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they spit on him. And took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Now Jesus had already been flogged at this point. That's how the Romans did crucifixion. They did the flogging first. That was their, their MO. But what the soldiers are doing here is not part of the norm. This is, this is something special that they're doing for Jesus. A little something extra. We're, we're just having a little bit of fun. We're just messing around here. And they strip him naked. And they place a robe on him. They fashion this crown of sharp thorns. And they cram it down on his head. And then they put the stick in his hand as a scepter. And they proceed to belittle and mock. Here he is. Here is that would-be king who thought that he could usurp the throne of the most powerful nation on the planet. All hail king of the Jews. If that wasn't enough, in verse 37, Matthew tells us that something was nailed up onto that cross above Jesus' head. It was the titleist. It was the accusation. It was the charge against him. And it read this. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. For the Romans, this was delicious irony. 
Here's your so-called king. Check him out. There he is on this wooden throne we've made for him. Other people were joining in as well. The religious leaders, verse 42, tells us the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, this is exactly what they wanted. And they said, they called him king of Israel. You know, the mockery goes on today, doesn't it? Some 2,000 or so years later, people continue to mock Jesus. This idea that Jesus was someone special? <laughs> yeah, right. The words Jesus Christ, they're, when they're uttered frivolously, they're in effect a declaration that the one who would be worshipped is nothing more than a swear word. Nothing more. How ironic. The sacred, uh, royal, holy one, Jesus, turned out to be a nothing, a nobody, a laughing stock. Irony. You see, there's a deeper irony going on here. An irony that Matthew goes to great lengths for us not to miss. It's an irony that's essential for anyone who desires to experience true freedom. It's one that reveals the man who was mocked as king that he actually was the king. And not just a king, but the king of all kings. That's what Matthew wants us to see here. In the very first verse of Matthew's gospel, he writes, This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. When he wrote those words, Matthew was intentionally linking Jesus with the royal line here. He's the great king that was promised in 2 Samuel 7 by Nathan the prophet. He would be the one who would establish the throne of David forever. 300 years later, the prophet Isaiah would write of one who would come and sit on that throne of his father David, and he would be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Matthew, he wants his readers to understand, to see that the long ago foretold king has finally come. And so in verse 2, he records the Magi saying, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? As Jesus go, goes around teaching, what is the thing time and time and time again that he talks about? He talks about the kingdom. When Pilate, the governor of Judea, asked, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said what? Yes, it is as you say. And as he hung on that tree, beaten, bloodied, on the cross, it appears that Jesus had absolutely no kingly authority about him, right? I mean, kings, they sit on thrones. Kings, they say the word. They motion with their hands, and mountains move, right? They turn their wrists, and people live or they die. That's not how people saw Jesus. This so-called king, he, he couldn't even, could he even turn his wrists? They were permanently fixed to a wooden beam. This guy is an utter and complete failure. The worst, the most inept, the most impotent king that has ever lived. The disciples must have been thinking something similar, or at least wondering. 
They had thought that Jesus was going to be their way to the top. Let's hang out with him, and the way is up. And here they watched moment after excruciating moment as the life slowly dripped from his body. And Jesus tried to tell them that he was going to be an entirely different sort of king, right? We talked about that last week. We read it last week, Matthew 20, 25. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve to give his life a ransom for many. Every, uh, every other king, they're using their authority to build their kingdoms up, to build themselves up, really. What Jesus was telling them, he would use his authority in an entirely different way. He would use his authority, not for the good of himself, but for the good of others. And at the cross, he, he demonstrated his authority to lay down his life. And at the resurrection, he shows his authority to take it back up again. And just before Jesus left his disciples in Matthew 28, do you remember this? Of course you do. All authority, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. His kingship was not over a land or a nation but over all lands and all nations. It's not over a particular race or people. It's over all peoples, every single one of them. His rule is not limited to a particular chapter in history. No, it goes on and on and on into eternity. The first critically important irony is that the man who was mocked as king actually was the king. There's no true freedom apart from the recognition that Jesus Christ is the king of all kings. In the agony of the cross, there is spectacular irony. Is Jesus your king? Let's move on to the next irony. Verse 32. As they went out, they found a man from Cyrene, Simon by name, they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, You, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross." You can't, can you? Because you're powerless. You're powerless. Absolutely powerless. Look at you up there. 
on the way to cruc- the crucifixion. Roman soldiers would have the, 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 the condemned carry the horizontal beam, cross member of their crosses to the place of execution. And there they would either have their, their wrists strapped to it or nailed to it before being hoisted up on the vertical beam. Here in Matthew 27, Jesus is so weak, he, he can't do it. Another victim had to. The loss of blood from the floggings, from the crown. I mean, when you get a head wound, you know how bad that bleeds. Jesus had bled to such an extent that his strength was sapped. And they strip him of his clothes, completely exposed. Exposed to the elements, more importantly, exposed, humiliatingly exposed to the masses to everyone watching, as Jesus was put to shame, they would have seen a man who appeared utterly and completely incapable of defending himself. Can't do anything. Not only is he naked, his ravaged body is hanging there, but there's nobody who can help him. If there are any followers left that would hope to rescue him, well, that, that's not even an option here because the Romans realized over time that sometimes friends of the, of the condemned would sneak in later on. They'd take him down from the cross and then they'd hide him. No, 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 we're not going to stand for that. We're positioning guards here. This is the end. They will see it through to the end. D.A. Carson writes this, Jesus has no hope, none whatsoever. Suffering immeasurably, shamed intolerably, broken in body and spirit, without any prospect except for the release of death, Jesus hangs in shame on that wretched cross, utterly powerless. And that's when the onlookers, they just start shaking their heads. There he is. There he is. This guy, he said he was going to destroy the temple. He was going to rebuild it in three days, which everyone knows is impossible. He can't even save himself. Some son of God he is. Everyone knew the temple took forever to build. Construction back then isn't what it is today. Great buildings, they sometimes took a lifetime, sometimes longer than a lifetime. The great cathedrals in Europe, the designers don't even get to see their completion because these things take so long. But the temple was even more complicated of a build than that. No chisels, no hammers could be used to, to, to adjust stones to make them fit on the site. They had to do all that off-site. And then they'd haul all these massive stones in from out of town. And then what if one didn't fit? Well, send it back. Delays, delays, delays. This thing took forever. How ironic is this, the crowd thought. The one who said he was going to rebuild the temple can't even pull himself down. (laughs) What a joke. But Matthew knows that when Jesus was talking about the temple, he wasn't talking about the temple, you know what I mean? He was talking about the place where God would bring himself and sinful people back together. That's what the original temple symbolized. That's where sacrifices were made. This is where we make restoration with God. Well, there's a new temple in town now. Jesus is talking about his body. Was Jesus' body the temple? Well, not up until that point. 
when he hung on the cross, that's when his body becomes the, the temple with all of its proper functioning because that's where his body was sacrificed for the, atoning, the atonement of the sins for everyone who believed in him. The cross was the altar. His body was the sacrifice that would bridge the gap that Corey was just talking about a second ago about uh, the gap between us and God, the created and their creator. And because this was taking place right then and there, Jesus' body was the temple to end all temples. And here there's a second important irony for us to, to grasp. You see, to every one of those witnesses there, they saw Jesus as powerless, pathetic, and yet in all reality, as the life slowly drips from his body, his sacrifice would empower him to defeat the greatest enemy of all time, our sin, my freedom. Your freedom was secured when the man who was utterly powerless made himself astonishingly powerful. Jesus endured agony so that we might experience freedom in the irony is your trust in the power of Christ. Number three, verse 41. So, all the chief, so also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. Here we go again. Another ingenious remark from the peanut gallery. How ironic is it that Jesus went around delivering all these people, delivering from disease, from demons, uh, delivering them from the hunger in their bellies. Hey, I even heard that he supposedly raised a few people from the dead. Can you believe that? And here, look at him now, hanging there. <laughs> Can't even deliver himself. What a joke. What a phony. I can't believe Aunt Sarah fell for this stuff. Look at him now. But of course, Matthew has been working very hard from the very beginning of his gospel to reveal to us a deeper irony that by choosing not to save himself, Jesus would become the savior of the world. The name Jesus is really the Greek version of the Hebrew name uh, Joshua or Yeshua, which basically means Yahweh saves. And that's what Matthew describes the, an the angel at the very beginning. He's commanding that Mary name her miracle baby Jesus. Why? You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And the only way that this was going to happen is if he refused to save himself. Jesus said to his disciples at the Last Supper, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You know, for sins to be forgiven, you don't just stamp it. You don't just declare it. 
No, the Bible tells us that blood has to be shed. That's what Leviticus 17.11 tells us. That's what's affirmed in Hebrews 9.22. They mocked Jesus as he hung there bleeding on the cross. And as they did so, a, a crucial irony was put on display. And that is this, that the one they said was unable to save himself was in reality accomplishing the most epic rescue in the history of the world, of the universe, in all of history. You know, the 20 lifeboats, the RMS Carpathia, whose crew hoisted people up out of the freezing black, were inconsequential compared to this rescue. It was not the nails or the soldiers that kept Jesus on that cross. It was the dedication to his mission. It was faithful obedience to the call of God the Father. It was, it was love for you and for me. Had Jesus somehow miraculously come down from the cross in some sort of blast of glory, you and I would still be hellbound, wouldn't we? We'd still be on board that death ship taking on un uncontrollable amounts of water, slipping slowly beneath the surface on a collision course with the unrestrained, just and holy wrath of God. But Jesus endured the agony, and our freedom was made possible in it. Have you looked to the one who refused to save himself so that he might become your savior? One final irony. Verse 43. He trusts God. He trusts God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again and with a, out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. He trusts in God. He trusts in God, they mockingly exclaim. Of course, they were not saying that they didn't think that God could actually save him. No, 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 no. They believed that God was all-powerful. Oh, yeah, the God we serve, he, the God we serve, he is powerful. They're not mocking God here. They're not trying. They're not intentionally mocking God. Instead, they were meaning that Jesus, his trust must not really be in the right God. Either his trust is misplaced or he really doesn't have any trust at all. Because if his trust were the real deal, well, then God would have saved him, right? He trusts God. 
you got to be kidding me. Yeah, right, he trusts God. Some people have suggested that when Jesus cries this out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that, that that's the point where Jesus finally cracks. He's finally had enough. He, just, he finally succumbed to the pressure of all this incredible weight that was on him, the horrific things that are happening. Yeah, Jesus finally broke. And, and they point to this, and they'll say that if Jesus struggled in that way, see, don't be too hard on yourselves when you lose faith, when the going gets tough. See, it, it can happen to anyone. It happened to Jesus. But the reality is that this cry was not an expression of, of faithlessness. And I don't have time to go into the details and explain all about their numerous reasons. We could talk about that later. But this cry is a cry of despair that a person endures as they experience the reality of the separation that sin creates between them and God. Now, someone asks, well, how, how can that be? How, how can Jesus, the second person in the Trinity, be separated from God the Father? How does that work? How can he experience the displeasure of the one who is eternally pleased with him. And even in that moment, Jesus was doing what God the Father had asked, and he's glorifying God in his actions. How does all that work? I struggle to come up with an answer for that. Even D.A. Carson writes, we hover breathless at the edge of the mystery of the Trinity as the triune God's matchless love is displayed in the sacrifice of the cross and the penal substitutionary death of the eternal incarnate Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. The agony that Jesus Christ endured was the agony that you and I deserved. They said mockingly, he trusts God, thinking that was absolutely not the case. He doesn't trust God. And yet the great irony is that even though they didn't know it, they were actually exactly right. Jesus endured our despair precisely because of his unwavering and unshakable trust in God the Father. Now, we live in a world where more and more people seem to think that breaking free is about standing up for yourself. It's about demanding your rights. It's about making sure that you get yours, doing all you can to save yourself, and letting everyone else fend for themselves. You can imagine what it was like to try and get on a lifeboat. And yet, sadly, that's the kind of thinking that got us all into the mess that we're in right now, back when our ancestors first decided that their way to freedom was better than God's way. And the disturbing, disturbing irony is that they, though they thought they were going to be free they ended up becoming slaves to a master that would weigh them down and take them and their children straight to the bottom. Not a happy thought. Thank God 
he had a deeper irony. Thank God that there was a more powerful irony. It's the glorious, ironic plan that he had before even any of this began. It's the irony that breaking free from our enslavement to sin is found only as we surrender to the one who gave up his life on our behalf. The man who was mocked as king actually is the king. The man who is seen as utterly powerless is infinitely powerful. The man who didn't save himself is himself the savior. The man who endured despair trusted fully in God that we might enjoy eternity free from despair. Jesus endured agony so that we might find freedom in the irony Have you found that freedom? Maybe you're not even here in this room. Maybe you're you're watching through the lens of this camera and you're watching online. Have you found that freedom? Have you come to the place of saying, I give up. I'm through running. I'm done with fighting. I surrender to the king who gave his life that I might have it. If you haven't done that, would you do that now? Confess your sin. Look to the cross of Christ and the work that he accomplished that you might be washed clean, forgiven, and given hope and an eternal future. For those of us who have already surrendered, we've surrendered to the Savior. I think the question for us is, are we continuing to embrace the agony of the irony? Are we walking in the footsteps of our Savior in awe of his ironic way of doing things? Are we so amazed at his selflessness that we consider it the highest honor to follow his lead and lay down our lives for the good of others? People look at us and they say, look at these fools. They're not making money. They're living in these dumpy places. Where's their future? They're They're giving even what they don't have to others who are poor. They're getting nowhere in life. Fools. And yet we hear the words resound in our minds. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Irony. Are we embracing it? As followers of Jesus Christ, I think we must. As followers of Jesus Christ, may we fully embrace the freedom that is found in surrendering to him and gloriously laying down our lives for those he loves. Lord, we we confess to you this morning this is not the way we often think. It is not the way we often behave. Lord, we're much more like that 
nine-year-old boy who thought to himself, well, if Christians are the victorious ones, then why don't we win? And why, don't, why can't we just go out there and fight it all and declare victory for Christ? Lord, I didn't understand back then. I didn't understand back then what an incredible, beautiful thing it was for Jesus Christ to experience victory as he laid down his life. And I didn't understand what an honor it is to do the same. Lord, you are, uh, your love for us is unfathomable. And I pray that as we step into this week, Holy Week, and explore the reasons for the cross, Lord, that we would be so in awe of you. We would see what you did as glorious and we would look at ourselves and we would say, Lord, that's what I want. If that's the road my Savior walked, that's the path he journeyed, Lord, I want to follow in those footsteps. Lord, thank you for the ironies of the cross. Thank you that the king is king. Thank you that he is powerful. Thank you that he saves. Thank you for the despair that he endured and that he trusted you even through it. May we do the same. We love you. We thank you. Everything we have is yours. We pray these things in Christ's name.